Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. I'm hoping our longtime listeners are finding that economic and financial markets are getting a bit easier to understand by our continuing focus on major trends and trend changes. We live in a world of many interdependencies, and this can be intimidating and confusing since there are so many changes taking place simultaneously. I try to filter out the massive amount of noise, including the 24 by 7 media cycle that has more of the objective of creating drama to increase their viewership to sell media advertisement time than to really unbiasedly inform. The objective since our podcast began over two years ago is to help focus on overriding factors and key trends that define our future lifestyles and financial security, regardless of media reporting or lack of reporting. A more specific objective is to help you gain perspectives and even warning signals of issues six months or more in advance of their emergence. We aim for no surprises and little, if any, financial losses versus becoming a victim of changing financial times. Forewarned is truly forearmed in today's global environment. Over prior months, we've anticipated the need to prepare for a much higher interest rate environment and upcoming significant declines in bond and stock prices. Thanks for those listeners who have given really positive feedback for our efforts. As we all know, there is no end to emerging economic threats, opportunities, and related impacts on our jobs and professions. Let's take a couple of minutes to recap where we are now before we continue with our future expectations. First of all, interest rates are now significantly up since the beginning of the year, with the short-term rates reflecting actual and expected Federal Reserve tightening actions and the longer-term rates reflecting high inflation levels. I think we well prepared our listeners for higher inflation in our podcasts late last year and into this year and well in advance. This week, we will have new and potentially really important insights, which I'll share shortly about the next six months. For now, we'll also recognize that the 30-year fixed rate mortgage is now above five and a quarter percent versus around 3% last year. The 10-year treasury note has increased from about a half a percent at its low last year to almost 3% now, and inflation has increased from 2 to 3% to well over 8% as officially reported in recent months. This was all pretty much expected, as you know, in our podcasts. Now let's talk about the stock market before we move to upcoming Russia, China, Europe economic and finance issues, which are bound to surface in the months ahead. As usual, we'll focus on risks generally not reported by the media or traditional economic reporting. First, the stock market, which we've concluded already, is in the beginning of a new bear market. Remember in a prior podcast, we emphasized that the Standard & Poor's 500 index became almost 30% weighted by the FANG stocks plus Microsoft. And the FANG stocks are Facebook or Meta, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, 
Google or Alphabet and Microsoft, and these stocks marched ever upward. That is, until they stopped marching upward. Since January, the S&P 500 has declined more than 10%, with Apple down 9%, Amazon down 13%, Google Alphabet down 17%, Microsoft down 19%, Facebook Meta down 45%, and Netflix lost 64% of its market value, and Facebook lost most of it in a week or so after reporting disappointing growth prospects. Additionally, we note the stock market overall has had four weeks of continuous declines, almost regardless of whichever stock index you're looking at. Many have not experienced a full-fledged bear market during their investment years. Take heed. I quoted the FANG stock and Microsoft declines to not only show the foundation for the multi-year bull market cracking, but also showing how fast stocks can go down. Please do look over your stock market investments as a percent of your savings, including the mutual funds and many retirement plans. The old rule of thumb of 60% in stocks and 40% in bonds is pretty much out the window, especially since bonds and stocks are both dropping at the same time. This is highly unusual and may be a once in a 30 to 40 year event. If you cannot comfortably sustain a further drop in the bond and stock markets of an additional 10 to 20%. Knowing it may take five to 10 years for a full recovery, you may wish to sell some of your portfolio and keep high levels of cash, maybe 25% or more of the total portfolio. This is presented as food for thought as we are not giving specific advice, only education and perspective. Bonds and stocks selling off together, again, the first time in about 40 years. Is real estate next? There is definitely a rotation out of long-term fixed-rate income assets. Alphabet and other large capitalization growth stocks continue to look vulnerable and continue to look overvalued. Larger players, who I mentioned I try to track as much as possible, given that approximately 1,000 companies mutual funds, sovereign wealth funds, and wealthy individuals control a large part of the stock and bond market globally. Some of the larger players recently have been taking short positions on the FANG stocks and Microsoft. And that to me is a signal that the bear market looks more entrenched than is generally recognized. Tech sector versus the Standard & Poor's retested the tech bubble levels way back in 2001. Now, 50% of the index stocks in the S&P and a lot of other indices are trading below their 200-day moving averages. And again, this last occurred during the dot-com bust 2000-2001. So it's really important to take heed. We are in a very unusual period. This is not, in my view, a simple period where we have a sell-off and we go right back up. If we are truly in a bear market, as I think we are, a bear market generally will go down three or four steps and then go up one or two and maybe go down three or four, up one or two or three. It's like a saw blade. It's not straight down. And for me, I'm looking at a standard poor's target, which is about 20% below where we are now. So I think there's plenty of room for additional declines and I'm not prone to being distracted by strong up movements temporarily. 
It's very important to maintain a long-term view during these periods of high volatility, and it's easy to get caught up in the moment. For example, just two years ago this month, in April of 2000, the Standard & Poor's 500 index was approximately 3,000. We've gone up over 50% in two years. That happened all during COVID. And also during this period of COVID, the Federal Reserve added historically massive amounts of newly printed dollars, while the government added record trillions of dollars to national debt, with Congress spending trillions of dollars that it had to borrow. The game has changed, and in case anyone wants to hear this one more time, I've said it one more time. Bottom line, it would not be crazy to expect that stocks would decline back to approximately 3,000 or another 20% plus and remain considerably below averages that we've had in this past year. By the way, it would still qualify as a very long-term bull market trend for the stock market if you look at 10 and 20 and 30-year slices. In my opinion, the risks of another 20% decline heavily are weighted and weight the likelihood that the markets do not snap back very quickly to gain even a significant part of the 10 or 15% they've already lost. We may be about halfway through the bond and stock market sell-offs this year, but as usual, we'll see. All that being said, markets are capable of having strong short-term impulses up, so it's important not to get swept into the ups and downs of volatility. We presented here a long-term view of added supply chain risks, interest rate increases, out-of-control government borrowing, inflation, mismatches between jobs and job candidate qualifications, and now escalating wartime conditions. We'll add increasing global currency risks, which for now seems to be the icing on the cake, and more on that in a minute. I heard a word this week coined for the stagflation environment that arguably we're in, and that was stayflation. As opposed to a stay vacation or a staycation, we are in a period of stayflation. And I say that because a quick look at the consecutive months over the past 50 or 60 years, we have exceeded 2.5% official consumer price index increases. In the 1970s, we had 188 months, consecutive months, above 2.5% inflation. In the late 80s and early 90s, we had 82 months. And now, inflation has just emerged. And we've only had 13 months of the CPI above 2.5% each month. So we could have a long way to go based upon history of where inflation has gotten out of the box. Raw materials prices continue up. Wages continue up. Recessionary spending is going to be impacted. Discretionary consumer spending is already looking weaker. Business margins are beginning to turn down. And I've pointed out Facebook or Meta and Netflix. Those are kind of extreme cases of margin turndowns, but I think we're going to see much more of that. And another area which brings stock prices down is the present value of future cash flows. Present value is a complicated concept for many, but as interest rates go up, the value of future cash flows in today's dollars goes down. So the expected prices of stocks, optimistically, a year, two years, three years, four years from now, discounted at a higher present value interest rate, bring today's present values 
down. And lower earnings and lower margins is uh, pretty dangerous to have coupled with high interest rates and lower present values. Long story short, the probability, again, in my view, of stock prices going substantially lower is much greater than stock prices continuing their record ascent of the past two or three years. And as interest rates go up, with about a six-month delay, bankruptcies begin to go up, and it becomes a self-fulfilling recessionary prophecy. And obviously, that affects bank lending. And bank bank lending being impacted by higher interest rates and higher bankruptcies in a recessionary environment is additional food for thought for a continued decline. Let's look at the bigger picture. And as promised earlier, I want to point out some risks in the currency area that have not really been surfaced in any broad way yet. I promise you they will be. We do have a deglobalization trend. I think that's becoming more apparent. And that deglobalization trend based upon increasing lack of trust among key countries is bound to continue to drive up defense spending. And we have a long way to go before we get to the defense spending in prior peaks. Back in the 1970s, defense spending exceeded 9% of gross domestic product. And right now it's only about 3%. So it's going to be heading up considerably. I don't know if it'll go to 9%, but it's, in my view, a lock that it's going to go well above 3%, which is going to be bullish for the defense companies. So that's one segment of the stock market that would be investable over the next year or two. Additionally, the China Central Bank is now in expansionary mode, while the Fed is in a contractionary mode. What does that mean? Well, that means the yuan, Chinese yuan, is bound to become weaker as China is more expansionary in their credit. And the yield differential, for example, a 10-year Chinese bond versus a 10-year U.S. bond, is going to favor the United States. So China is still trying to recover from a tremendous real estate depression started by Evergrande, but the currency itself all in, particularly given the expansionary Bank of China policies, is bound to make the yuan weaker. That is going to have a secondary effect on trade, and it's going to have a complicating factor. It's going to add a complicating factor to the foreign exchange markets. Russia and China have agreed recently that the yuan, Y-U-A-N, will be an oil-based currency between the two of them anyway. And if you go back to how the dollar became so strong, back in 1971, during the Nixon administration, President Nixon at the time negotiated the so-called petrodollar with Saudi Arabia. Prior to that, there were really not many dollars outside the United States. And after that, the amount of dollars as they were agreed to be the official exchange for Saudi Arabia and then OPEC oil substantially ramped up the amount of dollars held outside the U.S., which some came back to the United States investing in our companies and real estate. But the dollar itself always had demand because it was the de facto basis for buying crude oil all around the world. Now there is a change occurring, which over the next few years may be a challenge to the dollar in terms of a decline in the recent strength we've had because the yuan and also the Russian ruble, Russia has demanded be paid for Russian oil. 
The demand is either in Russian rubles or gold. So these two links about Russia and China agreeing for the yuan to be an oil currency and for Russia to demand gold and the ruble to be a purchase currency is going to have some very significant impacts over the next year or two versus the dollar. We're also seeing countries adding the yuan to their reserves, and this is in the past week, which is really a new phenomenon. Israel, a few days ago, added the yuan in addition to some of the oil-producing countries adding the yuan to their official reserves. Russia has very recently agreed to sell their oil to China at a discount, actually, when it is paid for in rubles or gold. So these implications are to be sorted out, but I'm pointing them out now to become a subject that you may want to give some thought to. We're going to hear a lot more about it, and it goes much more in the direction of creating a new trading block of at least Russia and China. India still is trying to stay in the middle. What does this all mean? In my opinion, it means that Russia and China are creating a trading block that could be more influential than the USSR was as a single trading block in the pre-1990s. The U.S., meanwhile, is effectively creating a U.S., European, and Japanese trading bloc. This is a possible first step from globalization to localization, and it will have real implications. I'm not clear what all the implications are just now, but I want to begin suggesting we all have this as a conversation. As we've covered before, weaponization of the dollar through exclusion of increasing numbers of Russian banks, Russian leaders, and oligarchs likely caught China's attention and that both China and Russia are now working on replacing the global dollar-based SWIFT transaction system. Maybe bypassing SWIFT is a better description, but this bypass will likely become permanent to avoid future Western world trade and currency sanctions and controls. In my opinion, this is now not going to reverse. The world is once again moving toward a Cold War, but this time China and Russia are the key to the Eastern Cold War bloc versus the USSR. Many countries will have to at least choose to remain in the middle as long as they can, as long as they desire, between these two blocs. But this middle, to me, indicates an increase in the trade importance of China and Russia, particularly in energy, battery metals, agriculture, and rare earth metals. Supply chains in some industries will change drastically, as will money flows and trade credit decisions. So don't underestimate the resulting additional costs and inflation ahead of us as our supply chains change. I mentioned India as a country in the middle. It's worth noting that since Western sanctions were implemented, in March, India has actually bought twice the amount of Russian oil as they did month to month on pre-sanctions. It's also worth noting that a Russian oil tanker this week headed for Western Europe attracted no bids for the oil on board as Russia demanded payment in gold and rubles and payments were offered in euros and dollars. It was a standoff and now this tanker and likely future ones will be directed to the Asian markets instead of the European markets. China's lockdowns in Shanghai are also having a growing impact on China's oil demands and demand for key battery and auto emission devices. Palladium prices have dropped almost 40% in recent months as palladium is a key metal for the catalytic converters of cars and catalytic converters and cars themselves in China are falling rapidly as the COVID shutdown in China continues in Shanghai and related cities, close by cities. Now is not the time to have a balanced 
global portfolio of stocks and bonds as the future changes are not that predictable. It seems more predictable that the U.S. defense industry will once again grow significantly as both a percent of GDP and as a growth segment of our stock and bond markets. What will the next six months bring? In my opinion, lower stock prices, lower bond prices, lower commercial real estate prices, stagflation, stayflation, the beginning of a recession, and increasing unemployment. We'll go into a little bit more depth in the next podcast, but for now, stay safe, be prudent, and take heed. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.